We are jumping into a new sermon series today um, on the book of Colossians. Colossians was written by Paul while he was in prison in Rome, probably around 62 AD. He sent this letter to the Colossian church with Onesimus and with Tychius, along with letters to the church in Ephesus, and then to a, he sent another letter on to Philemon as well. And the reason for this Colossian letter was there were two particular temptations that were threatening the church at that point in time. Both of these temptations threatened the centrality of Christ and new believers' identity in Him alone. And so one of those temptations, or one of those heresies, uh, we might label liberal, because there was a cultural temptation to add Jesus to the pantheon of the Greek and Roman gods, along with the different values that they represented. And essentially, that temptation was to allow the broader culture to uh, determine for the church what was true and what was right and what was good instead of allowing God to determine those things. Tim Keller would call this over-contextualization. And this is actually a temptation that we still face today. There's always a danger in the church of allowing the culture to determine for us what's true, right, and good instead of letting God be the one who determines those things for us. In some respects, It is uh, part of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's part of that temptation that fall. The other temptation uh, that Paul was writing to offset was what we might call under-contextualization, to use Tim Keller's language. And this was more of a conservative temptation because the Jews in Colossae were trying to influence the new believers in the Colossian church to adhere to Old Testament Jewish laws like circumcision and eating a kosher diet, among several other things. And that temptation, though it existed in a different form, exists in the church today as well. It's always a temptation for us to try to establish our own righteousness and our standing with God based upon what we do instead of what has been done for us in Jesus. This temptation might be labeled legalism. Because of these two threats, Paul is writing this letter to set the record straight about the essential place of Jesus in the gospel and our need to establish our faith and our life upon him first and foremost. Now, again, I mentioned over the next seven weeks, we'll be making our way through all four chapters of this letter, and we're going to pause to look at the various themes that we find there. This week, we're going to begin by looking at the theme of growth in the gospel or this idea of bearing fruit. But before we do, let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, thank you again for all the people that are here this morning. I thank you that you are the one ultimately that has drawn them to this place this morning, Father. And I pray that as they sit here um, surrounded by fellow believers and maybe in some cases some some people who are searching, Father, I pray that, uh, that you would pull at their heart. And I pray that not only would you pull at their heart, but that you would pull at their mind, that you would pull at their entire self, drawing them into a relationship with you. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. You guys have heard me reference a man named Robertson McQuilkin over the years. He was a former president of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. But uh, he would come and speak at my church when I was in high school every now and then, and I just remember some of the stories that he told for some reason, and they stuck in my head. But I remember one of the times he came and spoke at my church, I was probably in high school, and he talked about how he and his wife Muriel moved to Columbia, South Carolina, and they bought a little house. It was just this little ranch house 
wasn't anything special, but they were so proud of it and so happy to have their first home there. And one of the things that Muriel said she wanted to do was instead of taking biodegradable trash like, you know, banana peels and apples and pork chops, and instead of leaving those in the house in the trash can where they might attract bugs, she wanted Robertson to big, dig a hole out back that would be um, sort of a compost area in their backyard. And so he gladly went back there with a shovel and dug, dug a hole, and they began throwing all their compostable uh, leftovers out in this hole in the back of their yard. And he said they'd been living there for a few years when he noticed that there was a little tree that was growing out of um, the compost pile. And he said he looked at the leaves, and it was a little peach tree. And so he said, oh, man, this is great. We had a little peach tree in our backyard. And so he said he bought a little book on how to take care of fruit trees. And essentially, the book said you need to prune off three-fourths of the branches. And so he looked at the tree, and he said, that looks like it's too much. And so he decided, you know, I'll just prune off a little bit here and there. And he said, you know, the year went by, and when summer rolled back around, he said the tree had started to produce peaches, but they were kind of little. They weren't anything great. And so he looked back at the book. The book said, prune off three-fourths of the branches. He said, well, that feels like too much. I'll prune off about half of them. Pruned off a few more. Again, the year went by. Summer rolled around. This year, the tree had grown bigger. It produced fruit that was a little bit better, but still it wasn't exactly what they were hoping for. And so he's like, well, I guess I'll prune off three-fourths of the branches. And he said, pruned off the branches. He said, it looked like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree. I thought it was going to die. And he said, the year went by and the summer rolled back around. And he said, this year, when I went back out in the backyard to look at this little peach tree, he said, the peaches were so big and so juicy that you had to sit in the bathtub to eat them. That was his word. The point is this, and the point he was making, or one of the points he was making, is that we as believers will bear fruit. It's part of what happens when we receive this new record, this new life. God indwells us, and all of a sudden we begin bearing fruit, right? It's something that happens. So one of the things that we see here at the beginning to the letter of the Colossians is this is one of the themes that Paul is unpacking with the Colossians. These are new believers, brand new believers. And what he's basically saying is you're going to bear fruit as well, but he adds some qualifications. Let's jump into verses 1 through 14 of Colossians 1. Now, this is a section of this has already been read, but follow again with me again as I read verses 1 through 14 of Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace or grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness 
of sins. Now, I don't know how many times you guys have read through uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Corinthians. Many of the things that Paul writes about, there are these very long sentences with lots of adjectives and adverbs and descriptors. Sometimes it's difficult to unpack what he's getting at in a particular passage, or at least to simplify it. But we're going to actually look this morning, and we're going to see that Paul identifies three different things that are associated with bearing fruit in this passage. The first is this. The first is that bearing fruit begins with a rescue. Look at verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In 2010, 33 Chilean miners were trapped half a mile below ground in the San Jose mine. This is in Chile. A piece of rock, an actual one piece of rock, taller than a 45-story building and weighing more than the Empire State Building, crashed through the mine shaft and left them trapped in darkness in a small underground room, again, half a mile beneath the Earth's crust. For the first 17 days, they survived in the darkness of that small room, singing hymns, praying and sharing their meager provisions. They had no idea whether they were going to live or they were going to die. Later that day on the 17th day, a drill bit broke through the ceiling of the room they were trapped in, and they were at least able to begin to communicate with the surface above. And then on day 69, they were rescued, brought up from that dark underworld into a light of a fall Chilean afternoon. Their families were waiting for them. They celebrated as they were rescued, and most of the world celebrated as well. Some of us vividly remember living our lives under that domain of darkness that Paul speaks of in verse 13. For some of us, that existence within that domain of darkness, it was filled for some people with drug abuse. For other people, it was alcoholism. For other people, it was sexual predation. For other people, it was pornography or rampant gossip. Maybe it was slander. And many of us during that time in our lives felt filled or crushed with shame. We felt isolated and alone. And you felt that there was no way out of that lifestyle. You felt trapped. For others, our citizenship in that kingdom was filled with a different set of issues. Maybe it was judgmentalism. Maybe it was contempt for others. Maybe it was exhausting self-righteousness and pride. We readily recognize that first set of sins, but we're often blind to the second set. It's really the story of those two sons that Jesus tells. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul reminds them that they were rescued from that domain of darkness. The ESV uses the word delivered, which is perfectly accurate, but the word in Greek most literally means to pull out or to snatch up. And if you look back at verse 12, you'll see that it was their heavenly father who pulled them out of that domain darkness. When uh, May was about maybe 18 months or two years old, uh, we were sitting on the edge of a pool in Gainesville, Georgia with our friends, and uh, we were sitting there chatting with them. Sam was old enough where he could sort of paddle around and swim on his own, but May was just sort of piddling around playing on the steps of the pool, and Krista and I knew that she couldn't yet swim, and so as a former lifeguard who's pretty hypervigilant at times, um, I was keeping a pretty close eye on her, and I watched her. She sort of splashed around on the steps, And then as I was looking at her, I saw that she looked out towards the center of the pool, and there was a determined look in her eye. And I thought, I think she's getting ready to go. 
Sure enough, May just took off towards the center of the pool and was almost immediately over her head. Now, again, I was watching, and so I knew what was happening there. But she got, you know, probably six or seven feet away from us, and uh, she immediately was just on the bottom of the pool. Amazingly, she kept heading out towards the center of the pool. Maybe she didn't understand the concept of drowning. I'm not sure. But I waited for just a moment until I saw her struggling a little bit because I wanted her actually to experience that little bit of fear. I wanted her to have you know, some respect of the water. And as soon as I thought it had been long enough, I reached over and I snatched her out from underneath the water and I set her back on the steps. She was not afraid, by the way. She felt fine. But I sat her over there on the steps. Um, I was her father who had kept an eye on her. I snatched her away from uh, danger and set her on those steps. Some of you can remember when you were snatched out, when you were pulled out of that domain of darkness. It's not that far in your history. It's not that far in the past. Many of you, like May, were completely unaware of the danger until you were in way over your head and you were drowning. You needed to be rescued not only from yourself, but from this domain of darkness which Paul speaks That rescue may have been at a young life camp when you're surrounded by leaders who exuded a certain life and light that you had never seen before. It may have been at a campus outreach meeting your sophomore year when you realized that hooking up and partying left you feeling even more hollow and more alone. Maybe your rescue occurred because some spiritual mother or father, brother or sister, whether you knew it or not, was intently watching over you and was ready to reach out and take hold of you when you needed it. Regardless, this life of bearing fruit begins with a rescue, a moment when your heavenly Father reached down and pulled you out of darkness. That's the first thing we see Paul talking about here. He's basically saying, yes, you're going to bear fruit, but you've got to understand that it begins because your heavenly Father pulled you out, snatched you out of this domain of darkness. The second thing we see in Paul's uh, opening uh, several sentences to the letter to the church in Colossae, is that bearing fruit also grows out of the gospel. Look at verses three through seven. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in, the God, in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. These are all different ways by which Paul is pointing to the gospel, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. And so the point of bearing fruit growing out of the gospel really begins in verse 2, which I didn't even read. But Paul begins his letter by saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Those are both things we receive in the gospel. The implications of the gospel are that we have received grace, all the benefits that we don't deserve, adoption, forgiveness, a declaration of righteousness, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the list goes on and on, and that we have peace with God. We don't have to hide from God any longer in the garden. That relationship that we once had with Him has been restored. It is now a relationship where there is peace. It is as it was supposed to be. Verses 3 through 7, which I read just before that, they continue this theme of uh, fruit growing out of the gospel. Paul talks about the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. This is an element of the gospel. 
And then in verse six, he says about the gospel, in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The point is far more than just theological hair splitting. This point about fruit growing out of the gospel is vitally, it's essentially important. The book of Romans goes out of its way to make the same exact point. The first 11 uh, chapters of the book of Romans focus on the gospel, what's true. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, we read the transition from what is true to how that truth should then impact our lives. It says this, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, that's sort of Paul's summation of the first 11 chapters, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, what Paul is saying there and in Colossians is that our holiness should flow out of hearts that have been transformed by the good news of our salvation in Jesus. And without that gospel motive, our good deeds and our morality will almost always be selfish or self-centered. Jesus made that very point time and time again with some of the most morally stringent people the world has ever known. And in his interactions with these people, he calls them whitewashed tombs. In other words, they look good on the outside, but on the inside they're hollow and filled with skeletons. He calls them hypocrites, which is the Greek word for actor or actress. He was calling these remarkably good people frauds, actors, because he knew that their goodness was actually growing out of the toxic soil of selfishness and self-centeredness. Now, I've shared my story plenty of times here at Seven Hills Fellowship, but I'm going to reference it again. Um, I went to a public high school, and while I was there, I tried to be what I thought was a faithful Christian. And what I thought that meant was don't party, don't drink, don't hook up, don't cuss, don't do all these things. And if you had asked me, I would have told you, I'm being faithful to God, and I'm trying to honor Him, and I'm trying to turn, you know, make other people see Him through my life. But my actual motive was that I was trying to be better than other people, and as a result, feel worthy of God's love, and I was trying to earn His acceptance. Now that I'm older, I realize that's actually what I was doing. And that posture led to contempt, looking down on other people. It led to judgmentalism, me sort of evaluating other people's behavior and lives and judging them. Uh, ultimately, those were sort of the, the fruit of that stance in my life. French philosopher Albert Camus once said, people hasten to judge in order to not be judged by themselves. Let me read that one more time. People hasten to judge in order to not be judged by themselves. That was definitely true for me, and if I'm honest, it still is sometimes. In college, I took a different route. I still tried not to do all of those bad things, but I tried adding more positive uh, things or accomplishments to my resume. I volunteered with Student Venture, which was a little bit like Young Life. I volunteered with the youth group on Lookout Mountain. I was the editor of this thing called the Wittenberg Door at Covenant College. It was a place where students would post papers for debate and discussion on topics ranging from theology to culture. But again, my deepest motive was functionally still the same as it was in high school. I was trying to be better than other people so that I could feel like my existence was justified and so that God would have no other choice but to pick me. I don't know if you guys remember in Shrek, there's the scene where donkeys jumping up and down in the background going, pick me, pick me. During both eras of my life, my deepest motive wasn't actually pleasing God, 
but instead was feeling superior to other people and trying to earn God's affection. The result was hubris, not humility. It wasn't until seminary that I can remember actually hearing the gospel. I mean, I'd heard it 872 times, no doubt. But I remember the seminary professor pointing out when he talked about this thing called the gospel, that we weren't chosen by God because of the lack of bad things that we had done. And we weren't loved by God because of an overabundance of good things that we had done. Rather, we were loved and chosen by God because of trusting in the gift of his son's life, death, and resurrection. Jesus' sacrifice was the basis for my acceptance, not my performance. That was a game-changing realization for me, and I've spent the last 28 years of my life trying to live out of that new reality. Some of you in this room are actors. Essentially, on the outside, your lives look good. They may even look great, but the energy within is actually pride. It's a self-salvation campaign, and that makes it fundamentally selfish, self-centered. In his book, The Prodigal God, Tim Keller writes this, what must we do then to be saved? To find God, we must repent of the things we have done wrong, but if that is all you do, you may remain just an elder brother. To truly become Christians, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. If, like the elder brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you've worked so hard to obey him and to be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper your example, even your inspiration, but he is not your savior, you are. Still others of you in this room aren't older brothers at all. Maybe you're in the younger brother category and you're thinking, I knew it. If you look around at the rest of us in this room, you're like, I I knew you guys were faking it. But others of us in this room are in a third category. We're not actors, we're not older brothers. You're a person who has been reborn. You've been given a new heart, you've been given a new record, you've been given a new life, and you're trying to live out of all of those realities, but you're still far from perfect. Fear and pride, control, withdrawal, were the driving forces in your life for so long that it's a battle to put them to death no matter how hard you try. But the good news is that you are not alone. There is hope and there's help. Let's look at our next point. Finally, it's this, that bearing fruit ends in a life of light. Beginning in verse 9, we'll read through verse 12. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. If you remember, we began our very first point by looking at verse 13 where Paul talked about being rescued from the dominion of darkness. And here we're seeing painting a picture of the new life into which we are transferred. In verse 12, he writes this, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The culmination of being rescued, the culmination of the gospel is that we now live lives not in the darkness, but in the light. Jesus said that's where we would live if we followed him. In John 8, 12, we read this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Paul makes a very similar point in his letter to the Ephesians when he writes this, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. It's tempting here, for me anyway, to delve into each of these different usages of light and to look at length uh, at what they mean. To live in light, to have the light, and to be the light. I'm going to make a note in my sermon file, and I'm going to come back and I'll preach a sermon with those three points one day. But for the time being, I want to focus on what that life of light looks like. What are its characteristics? In verse 9, we see this, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It seems that a key element in living not in darkness but in light is knowledge of God's will. He rounds out that concept by adding spiritual wisdom and understanding to it. And so you know this, but I'm going to go over it real quickly. Knowledge and wisdom are distinct from one another. Knowledge is walking into McDonald's and seeing the caloric value of a quarter pounder value meal with a large fry and large Coke. It's 1,420 calories, by the way, just in case you're wondering. You now have that information. You have that knowledge. Wisdom is knowing what to do when you're faced with the choice of whether to eat that value meal or not. If you've just run a marathon, go for it. If you haven't exercised in a few weeks, you probably need to turn around and and walk out. The last word in this phrase that Paul sticks together is understanding. It's a translation of the Greek word synesis. Our English word synthesis is derived from it. In other words, knowledge without wisdom doesn't help you very much. In fact, knowledge without wisdom is likely to be harmful. And wisdom without knowledge may be slightly better, but it's not enough either. Steve Briggs, who I think is here this morning, is a very wise man. But I'm going to Brad Bushnell, an actual surgeon, if I need to have my ACL repaired. Understanding is when knowledge and wisdom are united in the words of Duck Dynasty, now you're cooking with peanut oil. All of this is in relation not to a general knowledge, but rather a knowledge of God's will. A life of light knows and then lives according to God's will. That doesn't necessarily make it easy, but it definitely makes it good. The Christian life is, in fact, always a call to surrender. That is, to God's will. Moses reluctantly surrendered to God's call upon him. So did Jonah. Actually, that's an understatement. Jonah only surrendered to God's will after God kept foiling his attempts to flee. Mary surrendered her life and her dreams when God called her to a life that wasn't her idea at all. Peter surrendered too. He laid down his nets. Matthew walked away from his tax collector's booth. Paul left his life as a Pharisee. Even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane surrendered to God's plan for his life. In Matthew 26, verse 39, we read of that surrender. It says this, He fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In each of these cases, someone made a choice to surrender their life to God's will. And their choices were anything but insignificant. Their choices mattered, and your choice matters too. In fact, God's larger story of redemption is built upon each of your choices. 
So where does this choice to surrender to God's will lead? Let's finish by looking at verses 10 through 12 of Colossians 1. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. The knowledge of God's will, wisdom, and the ability to connect the dots between the two leads to a life that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. When I read those words, I teared up a little bit as I was standing in the window of Swift and Finch. It reminded me of the ending scene in Saving Private Ryan, where a now 75-year-old James Ryan, at the end of his life, visits the grave of the man who saved his life some 50 years earlier. And as James Ryan walked up to the tomb of this man who saved him, he turned to his wife and he said, tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I'm a good man. We all long to hear the words, well done. We're called to live a life that's fully pleasing to our Lord. We were created for that. Emily mentioned it earlier. And one of our deepest desires, whether we know it or not, is to hear those words spoken to us, not just by our wives, not by our husbands, not just to us by our children or by our coworkers, but ultimately we are designed to hear those words spoken to us by the voice of our Heavenly Father, to hear well done. So part of this new life looks like pleasing our Heavenly Father. But what else does this new life of light look like? Let's jump in where we left off. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, we are to bear fruit in every good work. And this work, as you remember, grows not out of fear or pride or self-justification, but rather it grows out of a heart, again, that's been changed that's been transformed, made new by the gospel. And this life of light also leads to an increasing knowledge of the Lord. This relationship with Him is not at all unlike getting to know a good friend or getting to know a spouse. There's always more to discover. One of my favorite quotes, which wouldn't have made much sense to me in the first year of my marriage to Krista, now 27 years in, makes me tear up every time I recite it. It's from the Princess Bride. It says this, her heart was a secret garden and the walls were very high. If that's true in our human relationships, how much more true is it about the one in whose image we have been created? Are you seeking to know God? Are you pursuing his heart? Just as you long to be known, God longs to be known by you. So in this illuminated life, we bear fruit and we know God. What else do we see? Finally, we see that God empowers us for this life. It's, we're not on our own. Uh, it's not up to our strength. It's up to His. Look back at verse 11. Being strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. We see that we're not expected to live this life on our own strength or in our own strength, but instead we're to live this life in a power that is supplied by God himself. That power enables us to live this new life with endurance all the way to the end, with patience and with joy that comes not by our own grit, but comes because of his glorious might at work within us. Here's how Eugene Peterson, the author of the message, translates this section. We pray that you'll live well for the master, making him proud of you as you work hard in this orchard, in his orchard. 
As you learn more and more how God works, you'll learn how to do your work. We pray that you'll have strength to stick it out over the long haul, not the grim strength of gritting your teeth, but the glory strength that God gives. It is strength that endures the unendurable and spills over into joy, thanking the Father who makes us strong enough to take part in everything bright and beautiful that he has for us. God strengthens us for this life through worship, through his word, through prayer, through his power that is at work in us. He strengthens us for this life through connection with other believers and through his Holy Spirit who dwells within us. God also strengthens us for this life of light through what we call the Lord's Supper.